Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, everyone. I'm, well... It's obvious. I'm John Verhoeven, and I was a cop back in the 80s in Sydney. And I'm Paul Verhoeven, John's son. I'm an author, and I wrote two books about Dad's time as a cop. The first five seasons of Loose Units spanned my time in general duties, forensics, my time as a firefighter, and even my stint running a funeral home. This season, we're visiting the locations of Australia's most notorious, baffling, horrific crimes, and looking at what happened there. From Snowtown to The Family... From the Morehouse murders to haunted highways. This season of Loose Units is your go to guide to the worst crimes in Australian true crime history. Welcome to Loose Units The Shadow Files. Hello and welcome to Loose Units The Shadow Files. If you've come to our live shows or if you've listened to recordings of any of our Loose Units live shows or if you're one of the select few employees of Nova, the radio station in Sydney, when Dad and I gave a little bit of a talk there a couple of years back for Acast, you will have heard a story about a bit of a monster, a bit of a monster, a monster uh, referred to colloquially as the mutilator. Now, when you read about the mutilator, when you Google this guy, you sort of, what strikes me and what struck me, Dad, was the way in which he has talked about in the kind of hushed tones that, say, Jack the Ripper was referred to, a a pre, a pre-smartphone kind of, it's an era when a killer was, I think, a lot scarier because technology didn't allow for the rapid dissemination of information, right? You would pick up a newspaper and find out about things well after that happened. Mm. And in the 60s, this guy was, for a very, very brief period, but a very terrifying period, doing some extremely scary, gruesome shit, which by all accounts upset everyone from the lay folk all the way through to the senior constabulary and when you were in the police academy, you had dealings with uh, Detective Senior Sergeant uh, Barry Fay. Is that correct? Mm. Well, actually, when I finished my stint at Redfern Police Academy, then I went mm-hmm. to do general duties at North Sydney. Yeah. And then later on in my career, as you know, I got involved in forensics. And then I thought, look, a good way to sort of really sort of pinpoint my interest would be to, you know, join up the Central Fingerprint Bureau, which I did. And one of the most revered and esteemed gentlemen senior sergeants ever to have graced the halls of the Central Fingerprint Bureau was Detective Sergeant Barry Fay. Now, I worked with Barry. He was was an extraordinary person, but he was 
great friends, get ready for this, Paul, with your grandfather. Was he? My dad. How did they know each other? Because my dad was one of the editors for the Australian Police Journal. Interesting. And they Interesting. developed a very, very strong friendship. And uh, and Barry's still alive. Um, my dad's passed, passed on. Well, yeah, there's... God, sorry. Anyway, um, so Barry, um, this, this particular story, firstly, I think, Paul, it's really important. Um, well, two things I'd like to say. Firstly, is that, again, I draw reference to your your um, sort of standing and saying, Dad, let's, let's just don't do any gruesome crimes. Mm. That's really funny. <laughs> That's the irony is not lost on me, Paul. <laughs> Look, the reason this one works for me is because it is a look, Dad. We've we've technically referred to this character bef- character. We've technically referred to this serial killer before, so he sort of exists before my embargo. Does that make sense? Mm, mm. It's it's terrible. Technically, look, yeah. Look, we've never really dis- we've never discussed it on the podcast, as you mentioned. Um, this was one of those great stories that we saved for live shows, um, yeah. and we sort of we we touched on it. This is exciting for me, Paul, something that, again, you don't know what I'm about to tell you, which I know worries you. But we discussed this at the live show mm-hmm. in Melbourne a few months ago. We did, yes. And weirdly, and I've never said this to, and I wanted to say this, and this is a great platform for me to sort of explain something that um, you haven't heard, on the night in question, it was the it was the opening night in Melbourne. Oh, so the the night in question, as in the night of the live show, not the night of the killings. We're talking no, about. no. Okay, the, so. the night in question being the night of the live show. I yep. weirdly, my mm. Paul, have you ever been on stage and your brain separates from your mouth, where the words are coming out, and it's such a scary thing. And mm-hmm. has it ever happened to you where you're just sort of you, you need to sort of reconnect your brain with your mouth, so to speak. It's You, you know words are coming out, but you're starting to lose. It's just the, it happened to me that night, and I don't know whether anyone in the audience or even you picked up on it, but it was during this particular story about the mutilator. Yeah. I became discombobulated, and I just right. thought to myself after the show, did was I making sense? It was kind of, and this is this is an opportunity, listeners, for Paul and myself to really just pull it all together, but in a lot more mm. detail, because it's a huge story, Paul, and it was actually used. When you say, you, sorry, when you when you say you got discombobulated on the night, do you mean like what I, do you what do you mean? I, I got confused. There's a certain part of the story that we'll talk about next week because this is a two parter, yeah. and mm. it's something to do with. Part of the story, which we'll talk about next week, uh, that's the part of the story that became so complicated, and I'll sort of make reference again next week. Um, but it was just a part where I became... Because it's it's technically quite a full-on story. Yeah. There's a lot of information. There are quite a few victims. Uh, and, yeah, I just kind of... I think it just sort of threw me a little bit. I think this, this, the subject matter also is is tough. Um, because, you know, I was involved in um, 
you know, the identification of, of these bodies. And there's a lot of sort of morgue work happening. And, you know, maybe it just sort of, I had a bit of a sort of a flashback. Um, occasionally stories do affect me. Also, and you have, yes. you've, you've, told, you've told this story, uh, like we said, around the corner from where it happened. So exactly. just as a bit of a, I'm sure, I'm sure quite a few people have either been to it. We've had a lot of people come to our live shows all across Australia. We're hoping to do some overseas soon, wink, wink. But the point here is that we've had people sit there and hear dad tell a very brief iteration of this story. And so I'd never really connected the mutilator with the broader sort of uh, like chronology but the first time I heard Dad tell it was at the Nova offices to a boardroom full of basically advertising executives and sponsorship people and, you know, senior execs at, at Nova who were sort of there to hear about the merits of podcasting because obviously, you know, old school radio is still sort of warming up to the notion of podcasting. It's much better now than it was. But long story short, it's a room full of people eating danishes. Uh, it's about 11 a.m. in the morning, I think. And dad and I are sitting there and dad's holding court. And I believe I still have some photos and footage from it. Just watching these people's faces as they try and enjoy their danishes and coffee. As you say that just around the corner, we were in Surrey Hills at this point. In a, I think it was in a park. One of the victims of the mutilator was found. And I went, holy shit. I didn't realize at that point, dad, that we had serial killers who were that prolific and that infamous and obviously the Shadow Files has been a really interesting, eye-opening experience, not just for listeners, but for me, into mm. how deep and dark Australian killers go. Mm. But when uh, Barry Fay was... Well, first of all, can you tell me how, how Barry Fay plays into this story in terms of you learning about the mutilator? Mm. Well, he actually um, he wrote the original story for the Australian Police Journal in, mm -hmm. in the 80s. And this particular story um, is so fascinating. It was actually used for training in the sergeant's course in the early 80s in the New South Wales Police Force. Okay. So there are so many yeah. things about this story that, you know, one can sort of use in, in training. Um, and look, this particular case, listeners, is and was or should I say was and is, the very first case of its type in the world. So even though we haven't sort of touched on what happens, what you're about to hear, mm. um, it must have had a terrible effect on the police at the time. This is very, very early 1960s. 1961 was the first case. That's assuming that we know about all the, all the bodies, which is because you never really know with a serial killer but the modus operandi mm. is um look he was an opportuni opportunistic killer i think we can say because there are definitely so sort of, there's commonality between each particular murder the first thing that is really interesting is that it generally always occurred paul on a rainy night which is really interesting and it it it, it always involved a certain type of victim so I think we should start um, with the first victim. So it's around about 7 o'clock on a Sunday evening. It's the 4th of June in 1961. How old were you? Forgive me. How old were you? Were you one and a half. One and a half. One and a half. Okay. Yep. okay. And yep. thank, thank God, completely oblivious. But it's, you know, I'd love to actually... 
I'd love to talk to my mother, your grandmother, Paul. In fact, I'm seeing her this week and I might even ask her whether she recalls the media. Yeah. There would not have been such media frenzy um, in relation to the first case, but as it began to grow and the media began to feed off, yeah. this, off this basically a sort of a night-stalking, demonic... I mean, it's just... It's just really bad yeah. what, what unfolds. So yeah. you've got these two. Now, look, also, Paul, I'd like to say to you and the listeners early on yeah. that I am going to make reference to, to homosexuals, okay? We have to because it's, it's a very, very important part of the story. Well, the, yeah, I've, I've been coming across this because of basically the um, criminalization and vilification and bigotry against homosexuals has never really stopped. But at this point, it was, you know, it's it was, the 60s. It is, it is, yeah. And it went know, through. It I a, mean, yeah, well, look, when I was a police officer at North Sydney in the 1980s, early mm-hmm. 80s, it, it was very much alive. <laughs> there, were, there were some terrible murders that happened in Manly at North Head. Um, mm-hmm. one, of the, one of them has just finally, someone's actually been um, arrested and charged for a murder back in the 80s. So it's, it's, okay. it was rampant. So we are going to make reference to to you know public toilets because you've got to sort of take yourself back to the early 60s uh so we are going to make sort of references that please don't you know that that please don't get upset because we're talking about a time that was thank god very different to now um but these two... Oh, but by no means do I think loose units... Dad, I don't think loose units listeners would ever no, think no, that you or I was endorsing the... Agree, agree. Point. But I always feel slightly, you know, I feel uncomfortable. Sort of, I don't mm. want to sort of sound in any way that I, that I, uh, you know, it's just a part... No, we, we got used, you. We got you. Yeah, I understand. All right. So mm. it's a rainy night. It's, mm-hmm. it's... Pissing down, right? It's, it's just piss, pissing down. These two guys, they've, they, they've got their sort of their stash of grog and they're having a bit of a drink. But at the, early on in the evening, it was just sort of light, light rain, but sort of not rain, but just sort of, you know, inclement, but not, not bad enough for them to seek refuge. But then the downpour started and they know that there's a swimming pool uh, nearby in um, sort of for listeners that know Sydney, it's sort of Mrs. Macquarie's chair, the art gallery, the Botanic Gardens. It's sort of in that area, and there was a swimming pool. Isn't that a relatively? Is, yeah, the swimming the swimming pool I'm thinking of uh, is that the one where you walk up? Yes, past Andrew Boyd Charlton Pool, the museum on your left. Yeah, okay, correct. Yeah, okay. Okay. And it's on it's on the beautiful Sydney Harbour. It's sort of opposite the where the um, Royal Australian Navy have their warships. At Wollamaloo, mm-hmm. and so they they go underneath the sort of the supports of the pool to take refuge from from yeah. the weather, and they see okay a sort of a person lying down, and they mm-hmm. they immediately their first impression is that this particular person is intoxicated. Because it's a known sort of haunt for um, for vagrants, for homeless people, yep. for alcoholics, mm-hmm. and they make their way over. And there was a flash of lightning, and 
the lightning illuminates this particular body and it's glistening. At first they just thought it was wet, but it turned out that the glistening was in fact blood. The body I'm assuming was, this I'm assuming this sobered them up pretty quickly. Very, very it just snapped them out of their stupor. Yeah. And they looked closely and they could see that the person the pants had been pulled down, the uh, the shirt was sort of pulled up and yep. the <clears throat> singlets, because back in those days I think probably most men wore singlets. I I don't wear singlets. I haven't worn it. I, golly, I haven't worn a singlet since I was probably 10. Um, but they looked down and they could see that he had multiple stab wounds and where his genitals should have been, we're talking penis, scrotum, all of the pubic hair, so basically a whole sort of triangle, mm. everything was removed. It was just not there. And they were so traumatized, but they have a sort of a bit of a, they're in a bit of a quandary here because they don't have a good relationship with the, uh, the police. police. Yeah. So they mulled over for a while, but they begin to sort of look, as you say, Paul, they'd sort of virtually instantaneously sobered up as I'm sure most people would upon seeing something so horrific and they made their way to central police station and the station sergeant i mean you can imagine early 60s sunday night raining two guys come in the police officer would have made a sort of a an on-call judgment as to what type of people they were and they begin to mm. tell him this terrible terrible story mm. they these two guys in a police car and they drive them back to the scene of the crime. And there they see a terrible, terrible sight, which yeah. we've explained. It became a major, major crime scene. How many the stab wounds, had, by the way? You, men you mentioned a lot of stab wounds. A Was lot. It... Well, that, that, that did ultimately come up in the post-mortem, but there were 46? approximately... Yeah, Sorry, over, go, go 40, on, go on. over 40 stab wounds. Mm -hmm. But Paul... Two of the stab wounds, yeah. and this is interesting, some were done sort of down through the clavicle or the, you know, around the shoulder and they'd sort of severed one of the major arteries. But interestingly, um, I've read the post-mortem report, as have you, and one of the knife wounds at the back of the neck severed the spinal column. Mm. Now, what I read was that that was actually kind of quite accidentally the first one, which means that the guy would have been pretty much completely at the killer's mercy for the rest of the frenzy. Would Does you, that remind that... you of a certain crime uh, criminal going back in the past? No, refresh me. Um, oh, wait, it does. It is. Yes, it is. It is twigging something in the back of my memory. Belangelo. Um, Belangelo. Oh, God. Yes, it does have that. But see, Ivan Malat. Malat, we thought was a hunter or, you know, he would um, sever the... Oh, God, this is so gruesome. Also, listeners, it is, you know, it's 8.58 in the morning and I've just had breakfast and every time... Oh, my God. So, yeah. we the, Okay, so the first... And Dad, this is just from what I read. Uh, the first or one of the first stab wounds, yeah, was at the base of the skull and severs the spinal column, at which point the victim is completely... And and there was lots of supposition that this led the killer to believe that the killings from that point on would be that easy. Like it's... You know what I mean? It kind of... it's it feel, There was some theorization that it set him up for a... For a sort of precedent, would you agree with that? Mm, I all? do, I do, but I also feel, um, as we'll be 
we will reveal that um, mm. there is a, a common thread traveling through all the victims. And, yeah. you know, alcohol was um, definitely a, um, you know, one of the characteristics involved in, you know, the crimes. Mm-hmm. Somewhat opportunistic. Yep. It's not as though the murderer lured the victim, Alfred Reginald Greenfield, to that location. It's fair to say that he would have been at that location and the the murderer mm-hmm. has known that people frequent this particular location and has has more than likely found him at the location. Uh, the other the other scenario would be that he met him and they were both drinking together, but I I tend to discount that because I feel as though and this is based on my own opinion, is that I think the the murderer had a disdain for this type of person. Yeah. Um, but that, that that may or may not be revealed down the track. But this is when it gets quite creepy because, yeah. Paul, you remember Julian, of course. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Yes. In, in the book? Yes. Do you know what he and I used to do in that very area regularly? I know exactly what you used to do. And there have been newspaper clippings attesting to this fact. You used to dive in the harbour quite mm. often at night and illegally. But yep. I think, yeah, so this... So we used like- to... Yeah, we, hmm. we, we, we were diving for old bottles. Yeah. 
in the in this very very area, and right. this same area mm-hmm. is where a, a Navy SEAL yeah. who was diving training shackled with the himself. Royal... Yeah, didn't he shackle himself there? No, 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 no. He was attacked Sorry, by a bull shark, and had his leg and um, his posterior completely, yeah. you know, torn off. So he's missing a leg now. Right. That's that's in the same spot. So the next day, the New South Wales police organised scuba divers, mm-hmm. and it's a bit of a hunch, really, isn't it? I think the, what they would have been looking for murder weapon was the murder weapon. Yep. They have surmised that it's a knife, mm-hmm. and they feel as though it's around about six inches long. So the divers are out there, but Paul, eight meters from the shoreline, scuba divers, and it's, and I know exactly what that. Um, area is like underwater. Mm-hmm. It's it's rocky. It's got a lot of seaweed, a lot of crevices. It's quite steep, so it's a slope. It has to be because that's a major shipping channel for the Royal Australian Navy, which are only on the other side of the water. Mm-hmm. So, Paul, take a guess what one of the divers found. Given what was removed from the victim, what was excised from the victim. My first thought, Dad, just parenthetically, this is very confusing for me because it seems like the removal of the genitalia is a sort of trophy. It seems really odd to me that divers would then find that thing that was so, not carefully, but deliberately removed, just flung into the harbour. But yes, they did find, they did find his genitals, right? They found his... Now, listeners, I don't just like saying this for fun, but I they found his penis, scrotum, uh, testicles. I suppose the testicles are inside the scrotum, aren't they? And 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 the pubic patch of 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 hair. Like I said, generally speaking, I guess it's kind of triangular, um, based on my rudimentary knowledge of geometry. The reason this is uh, extra horrifying, or at least. Con- Interesting in, in, from a forensic standpoint, from a crime-solving standpoint, is that there was something written on mm. the genitals, yes. correct? Yeah, fascinating. And then this morning, uh, prior to recording this episode, Paul, mm-hmm. I was contemplating, A, the person, the diver that actually found the penis, because, you know, at first glance, underwater, it may have looked like a sea slug or a worm, albeit a big worm. But of course, it would have been flaccid, I think the word would be to use. And then I was thinking that they actually, they thought the penis had actually been severely bruised. Yeah. But they're looking at it carefully, obviously, under the light. And I would imagine, hopefully, it was at the morgue, not on a makeshift sort of rock, you know, near the crime scene. Yeah. But someone had the terrible job of actually examining the penis in some detail and they they started to look at it and I'm just wondering I guess they perhaps would have stretched it out well, that's um, what you that's what you would have done when you were in forensics you have to you, yeah, it's, I, it's I, a very it's a very rare organ in that it actually does true true rec- I mean I don't recall you know I never worked on any penises yeah um, because if I had if I probably would have remembered it but, you know, some poor police officer has had to then <clears throat> stretch the penis out 
and he realised that it wasn't bruising. It was, in fact, writing. Now, the writing on the penis, it was a tattoo. Yep. So I'm also trying to think of the tattoo artist that would have got this guy's penis and perhaps stretched it out on a, a little table. Could it have been a prison tattoo? I don't know enough about Greenfield to basically... Look, I've got no, a photo of him. I don't, I, yeah, no. Nah. I've, I've got a photo in front of him. They say... Reports say that he was heavily tattooed. The photograph of him standing at a pier has him standing in a white t-shirt mm. and uh, long trousers. His arms appear completely untattooed. So yeah. I'm curious as to... I know. You know. I know, it's weird. But yeah. look, listeners, uh, the tattoo said... Mm-hmm. Uh, all for just one night of love. Isn't that lovely? And he didn't spell for F-O-U-R, he just had the number four. So maybe yeah. he was saving. Maybe he had to pay by the by the letter or by you the know symbol. When you, Dad, you know when you're trying to write a, write a sign for like a school project and you start really big and then you kind of run out of space, so you have to hmm. squish the last few letters yeah. in? I'm not sure yeah. if that's... So it depends on the length of these novels, I guess. Um, you know, I mean, some people might be able to have a whole poem written on it. Right. This is, And I don't know whether it was just, whether it's in one line or whether it's multiple lines. Uh, yeah, that again is quite fascinating. Oh my god! It could be two lines, could be three lines, but if it was sort of if he's well hung, it could have just been one line. I feel like ironically we are getting hung up on this. Uh, true, true. Sorry, long. shit. No, no, sorry. no. It's okay. No, you're no, right. I was, no, no, I am. I'm trying to. Thankfully, the forensics reports and the police journal have not taken photos of this particular part of him, but uh, they actually did manage to track him down. They had his was, uh, body fingerprinted. He was 41. Uh, at the time of his death, mm. and they tracked his address to 141 Cathedral Street, East Sydney. I don't know that area. Very, very um, close. It's all happening basically around the same area. Like walking yeah. distance, effectively, all yeah. Correct. Yep. Um, but they would have had him on the slab at the morgue, and a fingerprint technician, and I can speak from first-hand experience, would have come in, folded up the fingerprint form, used the morgue spoon. That's a wink to all the fingerprint technicians listening. And they would have dried the uh, the individual fingers. They would have inked the fingers up. They then would have inked and pressed down and got impressions of each digit. They would have then gone back to the Central Fingerprint Bureau. They then would have classified and then done a search. And Bob's your uncle, as is the case in this particular story and fortuitous in that every single person, every victim that we're going to mention was or had a criminal record, which made it incredibly easy mm-hmm. to identify them. Let's just go through very quickly his last movements. So basically this Greenfield guy, he lived with a woman, I don't know her name, but they lived at this address, 141 Cathedral Street, right? Mm-hmm. They rock up, they talk to his, uh, his partner, Yep. And she says that basically he was a chronic alcoholic and every weekend he would just get absolutely but, maggoted. But, basically but Paul, Paul, right? mate, he, yes. Monday to Friday, he was, he didn't he worked. drink. No, he, he worked. He, he, so he's at the, now I'm not sure how many uh, listeners know this place. Uh, it's in Darlinghurst. It's the Courthouse Hotel, okay? So the night before he died, he was at the hotel with his wife. Uh, she had a 20-year-old daughter. Um, the, the pub closes they're walking back from the pub. He's got some takeaways with him. And then basically they have a fight and mm-hmm. he goes, all right, fine. And he basically heads off. Uh, and the last time he is seen alive by his, uh, to his partner, by his partner, he's heading down the steps towards King's Lane, uh, at which point 
he's disappeared. And the next time he's found, he's found by the two uh, the two vagrants, right? Mm, mm. So what happened to him between those steps is obviously, well, we know what happened to him. Um, but I'm just so blown away by the fact that this kind of stuff, a crime this gruesome was happening. Is that I know that's naive, Dad, but this seems like a pretty... <laughs> I, it was always my assumption that as the years went on, and this is, again, so naive, that serial killers and criminals in general became more and more depraved. But it seems to me like it's always been bad, right? It's mm-hmm. always the human the human brain and the human soul have always been capable of inflicting great suffering on people as evidenced by this. Because obviously this is just the first victim, you know? Mm. I know. It's terrible. The second murder, Paul, happened a yeah. few months later. Right. It was approximately five months later and mm-hmm. a a guy that worked at the Batten Ball Hotel in Redfern, he was a cook there, okay? Yep. He's heading home, it's raining, and he goes into a public toilet in Moore Park. I've got a photo of the public toilet uh, yeah. right here, actually. Yeah. You can still, you, you can, if you are so inclined, still go to this public toilet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he goes into the cubicle area yeah and in the very end cubicle mm-hmm. basically is a person propped up against the toilet bowl yeah semi-naked man covered in blood i'm looking at a photo of it right now now it's terrible uh, isn't it? listeners one of the one of the inciting incidents for loose units existing at all is the fact that when i was a kid Dad had reams of these police journals and files and whatnot in boxes in a walk-in wardrobe at the house we lived in, which was just off the premises of St. Luke's, an Anglican school on the northern beaches on this massive hill. We had this big walk-in wardrobe, and I was a kid, and I you know, wandered into these journals and case files and saw photos just like this one. Now, Dad, this is the first time live that I have looked at these types of photos from a Australian police journal since the incident that gave me such bad shell shock, it caused me to go into conniptions and then decades later write a book about it. So this is a very weird mm. sort of full, you know, full circle experience for me. Mm. I'm looking at the photo of um, of William Cobbin's body mm. in a the photo, toilet block. A photo, Paul, that the viewers will never get to see. You'll never see it, listeners, it, unless you subscribe to the or are a serving member of the police force and subscribe to the police journal, which I highly recommend, by the way. It's, it's incredibly written and well curated. But basically... It is a person, uh, arms behind his back. It looks like there's a jacket over his head, but yeah, he's uh, kneeling, black pants, white shirt, lots of blood. Black and white photo, obviously, given Mm. the era, but very graphic. Very Very graphic. And um, his legs are almost in a sort of a yoga type stance. It would be very um, difficult as a living person to to get into this position. To get into this position. It's very, very unnatural. You can see his right hand is just covered in blood. Yeah. And the face is sort of covered, which I think's... What is that, guilt, shame? I think the murderer has, has covered his face. Yeah, I agree. Maybe he covered the face whilst he then removed again. Um... We're not pulling any punches here. Second victim, yeah. Um, penis, scrotum, pubic area, all the hair, yeah. The whole, the whole, the whole kit caboodle. It's all gone. Cut away. Yeah. But we know 
from police reports and the government medical officer uh, that it was carried out with some precision. And this is a bit of a... The first story is terrible, but this particular story is that the victim, William Ernst Cobbin, mm-hmm. he worked at a local pub as what they used to call, and I don't know whether they still do, Paul, but they call them bar usefuls. Have you heard of that term? Never heard of them, no. Yeah, they used to call them bar usefuls. They're the sort of people that would, you know when you're at a pub and someone's coming around picking up all the glasses off the tables? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, they need to do that because they clean them and then they use them again. Yeah. And that's a bar useful. Okay. And this bar useful, William Ernest Cobbin, he... He was not a, a hard drinker. In fact, they they also fingerprinted him and they identified him. The thing, one of the common threads between all the victims is that they all had minor, minor criminal records. Okay. And it's a bit sad to say that because a criminal record back then was you could be arrested, charged and fingerprinted for being drunk and disorderly. Mm-hmm. That does not happen today. But I guess in a funny sort of a way, it it enabled and facilitated the very expeditious identification of all the victims, which is a plus. Well, yeah, because like you said, they're all on the record. I mean, this guy was basically a vagrant. It seems like there's a bit of a pattern here. There's a lot of a lot of these people don't really have the support networks that would have people missing no. them. But the way in which they were found, I mean, this guy was staying at the Salvos, uh, the Salvation Army Hostel, sorry, in Cleveland mm. Street in Redfern, which is again now is this the body that you were referring to when you were telling the story? at Nova that day. Yes, yes it is. But Paul, here's a sort of sad bit of irony. Okay. He was staying at the Salvation Army Hostel, Yeah. but you had to get in at a certain time, otherwise that you'd be locked out. But oh, no. ironically, that night, they had a small black and white TV in the hotel and there was a fight, a boxing fight. Mm-hmm. And this particular gentleman, Mr. Cobbin, he decided to stay on... And watch the whole fight. And because of that, and the fact that it was raining outside, when he left and the publican said that he only during that entire evening had half, like a a half schooner or midi Mm -hmm. of beer, he was offered um, a schooner at the end of the shift and he, he declined. And because it was raining and he couldn't get into the Salvation Army Hostel, it is theorized that he actually made his way to the public toilets to hide out and possibly stay there the night, which is sad, really sad. Yeah. And then the murderer has, we don't know whether the murderer followed this particular person to the toilet, was loitering around the toilet in waiting, Mm -hmm. or came across him by chance. But they didn't find... They didn't find the genitals this time. They, they checked the roof, they checked the grounds, they checked the park, everywhere. They couldn't find the weapon and they couldn't find the genitals. So I, it feels like there is a commonality there, but as the... Well, do you think... It seems to me they were expecting to find. They were. Uh, yes. But yeah. um, no genital, genitals. I mean, you know, did the, did the murderer take them home as a trophy? Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, we don't know. But... Um, yeah, that's a that's a terrible story, Paul. And if you scroll down, Paul, you may then see um, our number 
two victims. Have you seen the photograph of him on the slab with the, the knife wounds? Yeah, now they blood the face, thankfully, but these are... I mean, these are very vicious, vicious wounds. Good God. You I can just, see. Look, see how the knife wounds go through and pierce his jacket? This is very, very difficult. So obviously the police were really at this point kind of floundering a little bit, not sure what was going on. So they, they stationed people in and around that toilet block and the surrounding area to basically surveil and see if there was any sort of, you know, killers returning to the scene of the crime, uh, people who may have seen something, lots of canvassing. Obviously... Um, the papers are starting to publish were starting to publish stories about this and there was a rumor going around that the killer was a sailor mm. um, yeah. there was a it was there was mention of potentially a ship surgeon now before we bump out from this episode because next week we're going to look at victims 2 and uh, sorry 3 and 4 mm. i'm going to read a letter from the newspaper in yep. reference to this crime if you'd yep. like yep uh, now this was on the 8th of december 1961 uh, and bear in mind, as Dad mentioned at the start of the episode, anything this mentions I'm reading, I'm quoting verbatim, I'm not endorsing the views of this, uh, this letter, obviously. Yeah. I'm a reputable citizen and a JP. That means justice of the peace, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah. So that would be a, what a... Sort of uh, your, your mother, my wife, Christine, mm. was a JP. They are entitled, they have to be a very, very good character. Right, and they can... And they can sign, sign doctors, witness, witness, wi- you know, oh. legal documents. Yeah, okay, okay. Uh, I'm JP. I wish to convey a certain theory to you, Rita Park Murders. The man who committed these atrocities would be worldly wise, a knockabout man, and he could be a sailor. Have you checked the arrival and departure of certain ships? Look at the sailing lists. If he strikes again, it will be it could be subsequent upon the arrival of a certain ship. This is repugnant to the Australian way of life, and as I have previously stated, a man who has knocked about could be responsible, and this is why I advance the theory of a sailor, as a number of them are homosexuals. Uh, obviously... Apologies uh, to all the sailors out there. But, yeah, Just like weird rampant homophobia. The only thing I got from this letter is the fact that people are starting to do that thing that they do, which is where they throw out theories. And then when those theories take root, suddenly you've got hysteria and fear-mongering and mm. frankly podcasts. I mean, it is a time... You're two murders into a multiple murder spree. You've got a similar method being carried out. Mm. It is extremely graphic and vicious and there's been enough time between the murders for people to start like public awareness Mm. you know to sort of um gestate at this point it's the end of the year it's uh, 1961 and there are more killings on the horizon the next Mm. one won't be until the 31st of march 1962 Mm. but we will look at that case next week Mm. it's a fascinating case paul uh thank Mm. you for um for suggesting it well, you know, you're the one who brought it up in front of a room full of people trying to enjoy their breakfast. So I figured we owed it to listeners. We owed it to our audiences. We owed it to the world, really, just to sort of finally put this case to bed. It's a big one, though. And it's a big one. We, yeah. And um, again, very, very special shout out to the, uh, the staff at the Australian Police Journal. Yes, um, absolutely. It's, um, it's a restricted publication. Uh, it's heavy. And it's used for police, you know, and their agencies to, to you know, get a better understanding of, of some of the, the fucked up stuff that's going on. And it's, um, it's, it's, it's fascinating. It's, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. It's, um, it's a lot. It's, it's, it's a lot. And it's really interesting going back to the 60s and seeing how crime was approached then by, the, uh, by forensics especially. Mm-hmm. But make sure you tune in next week when we look at part two of the case of the mutilator, a 
genuine Australian serial killer who at this point looks like he's giving Jack the Ripper a run for his money. In the meantime, have a great week, everyone. We will be back at the end of the week with a Loose Units Loose Ends where a listener has sent a bit of a conundrum for Dad to answer. Dad, I haven't told you about this yet, but it's a fascinating one. So I'm very excited about that. But in the meantime, have a great week. Thank you so much for listening again to Loose Units, The Shadow Files, and we will see you very soon. Bye, everyone. Cheerio, and thank you, everyone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.